is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Episode 8, Francis Milton Trollope's Fiction. Uh, So before we get into the content of today's episode, I just have a quick correction. Um, And I'm not even sure if this was a mistake that we made, but um, I feel like we might have implied that Thomas Sr., Fanny's husband, didn't ever publish anything in one of uh, our three-part episodes on Francis Milton Trollope, and so I just wanted to note that he did publish a treatise on the mortgage of ships as affected by the Registry Acts in 1823, and uh, spent part of his time in later life working on an Encyclopedia Ecclesiastica, or A Complete History of the Church, a Compendium of Ecclesiastical Terms and Practices, of which only one volume was ever published, in 1834. So kind of like Casabon and George Eliot's Middlemarch. It's a really good comparison. <laughs> Very seriously saying he's writing, but then his wife gets a lot more done practically. Yeah. And also both are very, very cranky individuals. Yeah, a little bit. Both of their deaths are a bit more of a relief than they perhaps should be. <laughs> So we learned in those previous three episodes that Fanny wrote mostly out of necessity and we should take a while to consider what her process looked like. The main source for this seems to be her son's autobiographies. Most of this is pulled from either Thomas Dolphus Trollope's What I Remember and Anthony Trollope's An Autobiography. So if we start with Anthony, he dedicates, I think it's the third chapter of his autobiography to her. So the second or third. And I have some issues with Anthony over this. He says... Of the mixture of joviality and industry which formed her character, it is almost impossible to speak with exaggeration. Great, strong start. The industry was a thing apart, kept to herself. It was not necessary that anyone who lived with her should see it. She was at her table at four in the morning and had finished her work before the world had begun to be aroused. Even when she was at work, the laughter of those she loved was a pleasure to her. She had very much, very much to suffer. Work sometimes came hard to her, so much being required. She was extravagant and liked to have money to spend. But of all people I have known, she was the most joyous, or at any rate, the most capable of joy. So that is a strong start. He, I mean, it's a bit of a barbed comment about her liking to spend money and having money to spend. It seems a bit unnecessary because A, she's making the money, and B, everyone likes to have money. Mm-hmm. Everyone would choose to be stable financially if given the option. Right, it's just nice. But for the most part, that's a pretty even-handed analysis of her work. So she starts really early in the morning, gets her work done before everyone else. And that's something that Anthony himself copies when he starts writing. That's really interesting because there are a lot of uh, studies these days that say the most productive people wake up at four and start working right away. I can't imagine that. Yeah, I had to, I used to do that when I worked at my in-law's donut shop as an undergrad but now 
I have such bad insomnia that it's unthinkable to wake up at four because maybe I was only asleep at two. <laughs> yeah, I used to work at an airport and started that at four. And now I'm kind of like, I, I'm not sure how I did it. I used to have to wake up at half three. Mm-hmm. But Francis and Anthony could and found it really effective, I guess. Good for them. And I think Francis values what I did when I used to work during the vacations at during my undergrad, I would work from four in the morning to 12 noon. And then I enjoyed having the afternoon for me. And I think that's what she also appreciates. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, I've kind of really glossed over the going into Excel. So in in the third part of our um, episode, we just kind of briefly mentioned that they uh, fled England to avoid debtor's prison. and uh, But Fanny seems to have been like making the best of the situation and enjoying the travel and, and working the whole time they were in exile. Yeah, that is also a section that if you have been interested in hearing how terrible Thomas Senior is, might be interested in. Basically, Thomas Senior comes home, says, Anthony, drive me to the port, I think, and then <laughs> makes his escape before the rest of the family. Jeez, that guy. It's like a cartoon villain. And then Anthony gets back to the house and the, I think it's the groundskeeper says, quick, don't be seen with that, with the carriage near the house or whatever kind of transport they have because it will get repossessed. <laughs> so he turns back around sharpish to save it. So we mentioned in part three of the biographical episode that uh, Fanny, um, very much like Mary Elizabeth Braddon, worked through her grief. So she keeps working while she's nursing her son, Henry, who died of consumption while they were in exile. And then Thomas, whose health also started failing while they were in exile and who died, I believe, the year after. So Anthony writes, My mother was left alone in a big house outside the town with two Belgian woman servants to nurse these dying patients, the patients being her husband and children, and to write novels for the sustenance of the family. It was about this period of her career that her best novels were written. So it seems like he's implying here that, um, I think something that's really just a trope among artists often, which is that the best art comes out of suffering, which is kind of a dubious claim, but, um, sure. Yeah, I'm always slightly skeptical of it, but I can see it, a person saying that about themselves to try and look on the bright side, Mm -hmm. but it's interesting to apply it to someone else. And I wonder what criteria he had for best novels. It'll be interesting to correlate which novels were written. I was thinking that, actually. I meant to, if I had time, find out which novels he was discussing, because I feel like his opinion of what her best novels are might not exactly be the same as mine. Right. Maybe we can add that to our show notes, though. Yeah, I've just realised I missed out a part of Anthony's autobiography that I definitely wanted to discuss from this, so I will find that from the chapter of my thesis and add that in. Cool. (laughs) I think what we can draw from this is that Fanny made time to write in between all of her daily duties and everything that life threw her way. And despite the fact that she kind of had to fight for time to write, as we can infer from the dates on her bibliography, she wrote very quickly. So she didn't have very much time to write necessarily between the the duties of caring for the sick and everything else that she had to do, but she got a lot done in the time that she had. And for example, her first manuscript was about 600 pages, 
And uh, I just thought it was interesting that she called that manuscript griffonage, which means careless handwriting or, wait for it, scribblings. So she was a scribbler by her own, uh, in her own estimation. Yeah. Brilliant. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, I want to kind of take issue with another person who refers to her as a kind of scribbler or disparages her work, because her son Anthony is kind of in quite large part to blame for the lack of I think he shares a lot of the blame for her being forgotten by a critical memory so in his autobiography he makes some quite uncomfortable comments about her like he says the thing about her always wanting money he concludes his chapter about her by saying she was endowed too with much creative power with considerable humour and a genuine feeling for romance great brilliant and then he ruins it by saying but she was neither clear-sighted nor accurate, and in her attempt to describe morals, manners, and even facts, was unable to avoid the pitfalls of exaggeration. What? Shut up, Anthony. He's just wrong. (laughs) It's a lot. He's incredibly wrong. And I think it's worth noting as well that a lot of people, or a lot of the criticism that I've read, basically says her characterisation is stronger than his at quite a few times. So there are several occasions where she, her characterisation is seen as more there's more affect in it than there is in a lot of Anthony's writing yeah there's a criticism of his work now is I mean often he is like the poster boy for uh, what Henry James called the baggy Victorian novel the baggy monster that is a Victorian novel right his his work rambles on and he loses focus and uh, he he loses power by following like little rabbit trails of plot instead of focusing on um, tight and like well paced stories. Yeah, I wouldn't want anyone to get the impression that I don't like his work because I do really very much like his work. But also, I think this is very uncalled for, and it's very kind of setting up a false opposition. There's no need to compare yourself to your mum or bring your mum down to help your own reputation. Right. I think it's a pretty immature tack. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, that truism that when you're criticizing someone else, it's almost always for a fault that you have in yourself. And I think that is true here. Like, his writing has uh, lasted. He he has a, a real impact in English literature. But also, <laughs> it's not perfect. And I think maybe this criticism of his mother is from a discomfort about his own skill. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Maybe we should move on from Anthony. I don't want anyone to get the impression that I don't like him because I do, as I said. But also, on this subject, I could speak for hours. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of which, we'll move on to her research and her other surviving son. If I'm not talking for hours about Jonathan Jefferson Whitlaw, I'm quite likely to be found speaking at length about Michael Armstrong, The Factory Boy, which is one of Francis's other really important works. It's the first social problem novel published in 1840, almost certainly given that fact before on this podcast, but it also gives us a really good insight into her research process. So I'll quickly flash back to Jonathan Jefferson Law, because as we know, she wrote from experience from seeing the slaves in person, and she did the same for Michael Armstrong, so she took research trips basically she went to Manchester and Bradford she toured around Lancashire which is where a lot of the mills were in this country and Thomas Adolphus writes that it's about this time i.e in the year 1839 that my mother 
who had been led by I forget what special circumstances to take a great interest in the then hoped for factory legislation and in Lord Shaftesbury's efforts in that direction, determined to write a novel on the subject with the hope of doing something towards attracting the public mind to the question and to visit Lancashire for the purpose of obtaining accurate information and local details. The novel was written, published in the then newly invented fashion of monthly numbers and called Michael Armstrong. The publisher, Mr Coburn, paid a long price for it and did not complain of the results. But it never became one of the more popular among my mother's novels, sharing, I suppose, the fate of most novels written for some purpose other than that of amusing their readers. Novel readers are exceedingly quick to smell the rhubarb under the jam in the dose offered to them and set themselves against the undesired preachment as obstinately as the naughtiest little boy who ever refused to be physicked with nastiness for his good. I find that, again, a very interesting, somewhat criticism from one of her sons. Mm -hmm. He's not as critical as Anthony, but it's still some... It's still critical. Yeah, and I... I mean, admittedly, I've only read one of her novels and scraps of her other work, but it seems like he's saying it's overly didactic, and I didn't get that impression at all. Yeah, 